Welcome, everybody, to the Live from the Code Bar podcast recorded from the Code Theme Bar of Fenwood Manor. I'm your guide on this adventure, Rob. On this show, I'm going to share with you two stories of some lesser known and still missing treasures. They may not be pirate buried treasure chests of gold and jewels or stolen Nazi loot, but they are still interesting and relatively unknown stories. So sit back, grab a drink, and let me tell you about the Just Judges and the twice stolen Jules Rimet Trophy. But first, as always, I want to start off with some housekeeping. As usual, I want to give a great big thank you to every one of you that so far have downloaded and listened to the show. The podcast is already at almost a thousand downloads as of this recording, and this is show 10, which is totally blowing my mind. I want to give a big shout out to the usuals, Nick Spira, Robert Brewer, and Stephen Jenner, who created the music, art, and Ed, of course, edited the show. Now, of course, on with the show. Treasure number one, The Just Judges. The Just Judges, also known as the Righteous Judges, is the lower left panel of the Ghent Altarpiece. Now, if you don't know, an altarpiece is a large painting that is divided into sections or panels and usually represents a religious subject made for placing behind the altar of a Christian church and was painted by Jan Jan van Eyck, or, and it's unknown yet, uh, who actually did the painting. It could be his brother, Herbert van Eyck. History is not sure, but it was usually painted, the historians say, between 1430 and 1432. It is believed that the panel shows portraits of several contemporary figures, such as Philip the Good. Now, Philip was the Duke of Burgundy between 1419 to 1467 and was most famous for his administration reforms, his patronage of the Van Eyck brothers, and of course, the capture of Jonah of Arc, you know, Noah's wife. Do I get a laugh there? It's also possible that the artists Herbert and Jan van Eyck painted themselves in it also. The panel was actually stolen in 1934 and has never been found. Dun, dun, dun. Let's talk about the theft. The panel was displayed at the St. Barvo Cathedral in Ghent, which is a port city in northwest Belgium, together with the rest of the Ghent altarpiece, until it was stolen and during the night of... April 10, 1934. The first and really the only suspect for this mystery is that it was possibly stolen by the Belgian Arsene Goditier. Now, my pronunciation is wrong. I understand that. I'm not Belgian. Uh, But on November 25th, 1934, not long after the actual piece was stolen, this this self-proclaimed thief, Arsene, uh, revealed on his deathbed to his lawyer that he was the only one who knew where the masterpiece was hidden and that he would take the secret to his grave. Arsene told his lawyer, which his name was Georges Devos, that I alone know where the mystic lamb is. The information is in the drawer on the right of the white writing table in an envelope marked Mutilate. Now, I don't know if he was contradicting himself there. He said he only he knew where it was, yet it was in the drawer. Who knows? DeVos did find a carbon copies of some ransom notes and an unsent note that said, it, the Ghent altarpiece, rests in a place where neither I nor anybody else can take it away without arousing the attention of the public. DeVos only told the police of of Arsene's confession a month after he died. The police then concluded, without any other suspects, that Arsene was the thief. Some other interesting information surrounds this missing treasure, however. 
On the day after the theft, the commissioner of the Ghent police, his name was Anton Leisterboers, was briefly present at the crime scene before he too left to investigate the theft of all things at a nearby cheese shop. I guess he really had his priorities, right? So how was this piece stolen? Well, the panel itself was removed from its frame, apparently with very loving care, leaving all the other panels still there and undamaged. In the empty space was left a note, written in French, with the words, Taken from Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. A reference to the fact that the altarpiece, having been removed to Berlin by German forces during World War I, had been reunited and returned in accordance with Article 247 of the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I. On April 30, the Bishop of Ghent received a ransom demand for 1 million Belgian francs, to which the Belgian minister refused to agree. A second letter was delivered in May. The Belgian government then commenced negotiations with the thief, arguing that since the lost panel was a national treasure, the diocese ownership interest was subordinate to that of the nation. Correspondence continued through October between the thief and the government, with the exchange of at least 11 different letters. In an act of good faith, the ransomer returned one of the panel's two parts, a grisaille painting, which I didn't know either, but is a method using only shades of grey, of St. John the Baptist. There is also speculation that the presumed thief, Arsene, could not have actually acted alone and that he must have had inside help, possibly one of the four custodians of the cathedral. Several people have claimed to know its whereabouts and extensive searches have been held to locate it, including an x-ray of the whole entire cathedral to a depth of up to 10 metres. The panel has never, unfortunately, been recovered and it's now believed to have been sadly destroyed. To this day, a Ghent police detective always remains assigned, sitting right next to a phone, to the case of the missing panel, just in case there's a break. The panel was replaced in 1945 by a copy made by Belgian copyist Joff van der Wieken. Van der Wieken used a two-centuries-old closet shelf as the painting panel. He made the copy of the missing pa- painting on the basis of a copy that Michael Kioxi, who was uh, born 1499, died in 1592, had produced in the mid-16th century for Philip II of Spain and was kept at the Royal Museums of Fine Arts in Belgium. In order to harmonise his copy with the appearance of the other panels of the Ghent altarpiece, van der Wieken applied a layer of wax to create a similar patina. Van der Wieken subtly indicated that his work was a copy by giving one of the horsemen the facial features of the then Belgian king, Leopold III. So that's the story of the missing Ghent altarpiece. Could it be hidden somewhere and found one day? Or is it destroyed and lost to all the ages forever? I guess we might never know. So let's move on to story number two, the twice stolen cup. The Jules Remet Trophy is the trophy that was awarded to the winner of the football soccer world cup it was stolen first in 1966 prior to the 1966 fifa world cup in england the trophy was later recovered but it was again stolen in 1983 and has since not been recovered the football association had received the silver gilt trophy in january of 1966 just before the world cup was scheduled to happen in england in july it was usually kept in their headquarters at lancaster gate and apart from a couple times it was shared for some publicity events, it never really left. 
In February, Stanley Gibbons, or the Stanley Gibbons Stamp Company, received permission to place the trophy in their StampX exhibition in March, on condition that it would be under guards 24 hours a day and at all times day and night. The trophy was also insured for £30,000, despite its official value being listed as only £3,000. The exhibition was held in the Westminster Central Hall, London, and opened on March 19, 1966, and the World Cup was, of course, a major attraction in England. Two uniformed police officers guarded the trophy around the clock, reinforced by two plainclothes officers who also patrolled during the day. Additional guards stood beside the display cabinet when the, ca- when the exhibition was open, but nobody was watching the trophy all of the time. On Sundays, the central hall was used for church services by the Methodists. Let's turn to the theft. On Sunday, March 20th, when the guards began their noon circuit around 12.10pm, they noticed that someone had forced open the display case and the rear doors of the building had been, had been opened and somebody had stolen the trophy. The wooden bar that held the door closed was lying on the floor. The thieves had removed the screws and bolts that held it from the other side of the door. They had then removed the padlock from the back of the display case, taken the trophy and left the way that they had come in. None of the guards had seen or heard anything suspicious at all, though one of them did later report that he had seen a strange man by the public telephone when he had visited the toilet on the first floor. Scotland Yard soon took control of the case straight away and gave it to the Flying Squad, also known as the Robbery Squad. Well, isn't that a cool name, Flying Squad? I, I, I had fun just playing with that one. Officers interviewed the guards and two maintenance workers. One of the churchgoers who was there on that Sunday had also noticed a man, a strange man, a suspect man, but gave different descriptions to the guard. The story soon went public and spread all over the world over the next couple of days. Police had begun to look for the two potential suspects, but their descriptions and the newspaper that the newspaper gave did not correspond. And so since nobody could really decide on what was going on with the witnesses, nothing really happened from it. So let's talk about the ransom demand. So on Monday, the 21st of March, Joe Mears, the chairman of the Football Association, received an anonymous phone call. The unknown man said that Mears would receive a parcel at Chelsea Football Club the very next day. The parcel was delivered to Mears' home and it contained the removable lining from the top of the trophy and a ransom note that demanded £15,000 in $1.05 pound, sorry, in £1 and £5 notes. The letter stated that the FA, Football Association, should place a coded ad in the personal ads column of the evening news. If they followed the instructions, they were told that they would get the trophy back by Friday. If the FA informed the police or the press, the thieves would melt the trophy down, destroying it forever. Shortly afterwards, Mears received yet another call. This man identified himself only as Jackson. Jackson changed up the instructions to include only £5 and £10 notes in the ransom. I guess he didn't want any of those pesky £1 notes. Despite the thieves' warnings, Mears contacted the police straight away. He met with Detective Inspector Charles Buggy of the Flying Squad and gave the trophy, lining and the letter to him. Police told Mears to place an ad on March 24th and they then contacted a bank and had a false ransom payment created out of bundles of ordinary paper with real money only at the top and the bottom of each stack. 
This was then placed into a suitcase. Two police officers were then to act as Mia's assistants in handling the money over. All that was left to do was to wait for the next call. When the thieves finally did call Mears, he was actually suffering from an asthma attack, so his wife answered instead and gave the phone to the assistant, McPhee, who was really Detective Inspector Buggy. Jackson was nervous, but finally agreed to a prearranged switch and told McPhee to come to the Battersea Park and to meet him at the gate. Buggy drove to the park, followed by a number of unmarked flying squad vehicles, and met Jackson. Buggy showed him the suitcase, and Jackson failed to notice that most of the money was nothing but scrap paper. Buggy insisted on seeing the trophy before handing over the money and said he feared that somebody would try to rob him. Jackson stepped into Buggy's car and agreed to lead him to the trophy. On the way, Jackson noticed the flying squad van that was following very close behind, and he got nervous. At a traffic light in Kennington Park Road, he told Buggy to stop and said he was going to go get the trophy. When he walked away, the van also stopped, and Jackson disappeared around a corner. Buggy intended to follow him, but Jackson reappeared, and Buggy told him to get back in the car. Soon after, Jackson again jumped out of the moving vehicle, and this time he did try to run away. Buggy pursued him first with a car and then on foot until eventually he ended up capturing him in, the ho- in a garden house. He then revealed that he was, of course, a police officer and arrested him on the spot. Other officers soon showed up and they all escaped, escorted Jackson to the nearby Kennington police station. At the police station, a police officer recognized Jackson as he was really known as Edward Bletchley, a petty thief and a used car dealer who'd been convinced convicted of theft and receiving stolen goods in the past. Bletchley denied that he had stolen the cup, but somehow claimed that he could retrieve it and he was, if he was granted bail, which of course was denied. He was formally charged with the theft of the trophy and the breaking and entering. Bletchley claimed that someone he knew only as The Pole had offered him £500 to act as the middleman. Mrs Coombs, who had seen a strange man in the central hall, identified him but the security guard did not recognise him at all. So here's the recovery of the trophy. On March 27, Davy Corbett and his dog Pickles were walking in the Balula Hill district of South East London when Pickles began to sniff at a parcel that was lying under the hedge of Corbett's house. It was wrapped in an old newspaper and tied with a string. When he opened the parcel, he noticed the winner's names on the bottom and he recognised the trophy straight away. He handed the parcel to the police at the Gypsy Hill Police Station. Police took Corbett and the trophy to Cannon Road Police Station, where Harold Mays of the FA identified the trophy straight away. Police did briefly suspect that Corbett was involved with the theft, but he had a very strong alibi, so he was soon released with no issues. The police announced the recovery of the the trophy the very next morning, but retained the cup as evidence until April 18th. They returned it to the FA before the opening of the World Cup tournament. Pickles the dog briefly became a celebrity and even appeared on TV and in some small movies. David Corbett got to attend the players' celebration dinner after the World Cup final and he later received a reward totaling almost £6,000. The Football Association Association made a replica of the trophy for all public celebrations. Edward Bleachley was, however, Jackson, was convicted of demanding money with menaces and intent to steal and received concurrent sentences of two years. He died of emphysema in 1969. But wait, 
Hold the phones. This is not the end of the story. I did mention this is the twice stolen cup. Fast forward to 1970 and Brazil was had received the Jules Rimet trophy in perpetuity after winning the World Cup for a third time. But in 1983, the trophy was again stolen. A banker and football club agent, although the club, Club Atletico Mineiro, denies his employment, called Sergio Piera Ares, also known as Sergio Peralta, was the mastermind of, mastermind of this thief. Peralta engaged two other men, an ex-police officer called Francisco Rivera, a.k.a. Chico Barbuda, and a decorator, Jose Luis Vieira, a.k.a. Luis Bigode. All these AKAs. The two men entered the Brazilian Football Confederation, CBF's building, and after incapacitating the night watchman, stole the trophy, as well as two other trophies, the Equavita and the Juato. A safecracker, Antonio Seta, a.k.a., of course, Bora, revealed that Peralta had also approached him for the job, but he refused out of patriotism and because his brother had died of a heart attack when Brazil won the Jules Rimet trophy. Peralta and the rest of the suspects were soon arrested, and it was claimed that the trophy had been melted down into gold bars by Juan Carlos Hernandez, an Argentine gold dealer. Hernandez denied the accusation, and traces of the gold were uh, and the traces of gold found an analysis of his foundry did not match the material of the trophy. In fact, this really did raise some serious doubts because the trophy was, of course, not made of solid gold. So how could they have melted it down? And according to Petro, oh, sorry, Pedro Boanga, the Brazilian federal police officer who led the original investigation, it wouldn't be worth a lot more if it was left intact anyway. Hernandez was arrested along with all the other suspects, but when they were about to receive their sentences, they all fled. Chico was later shot to death in 1989 by five men in a bar. Luez was rearrested and freed from jail in 1998. Antonio died in a car accident in 1985 as he was going to the police central station to testify on this very crime. And Hernandez, who had brought, who had brought a luxury estate in the upper-class Rio neighborhood of Humantala, shortly after the theft, fled to France and was arrested in 1998 at a bus station in San Paulo for drug trafficking. He had also served time in jail in France for the same offence. He was freed from jail in 2005, having never served the penalty for receiving stolen goods that he would incur for the trophy. The mastermind, Sergio Peralta, was freed from jail in 1998. He died of a heart attack in 2003. The trophy has never been recovered, and like the altarpiece, it's thought to be lost to time. Or it could be sitting in some person's vault of a collector who doesn't like to share. Instead, just like the altarpiece, a replica of the Jules Rimet trophy was presented to the CBF in 1984. So there it is, two treasures that have either been destroyed or lost to time forever. Or are they? Are they still out there to be found? Maybe we can search together and find them. Who's up? Diggers, I want to share something very special with you. I know I promised you three stories about lesser known treasures this episode, but something else has come up. Something that you're only going to find here on the Code Bar podcast. I was just sent this mysterious message with no name or any other information. Just an audio file and a brief message that's read only. Share this. Kind regards, SG. Now, as you know, I love puzzles. So I couldn't resist listening. And 
So after listening it, I definitely want to share it with you. So here it is. I'm here to tell a tale, a story of secrets, and ultimately a hidden treasure. You may choose not to travel with me on this journey and dismiss what you read as ramblings of an old man. Indeed, that would be understandable. To take my hand and voyage into the unknown takes a certain sign of foolish bravery and the need to embrace uncertainty. That is not for everyone. So, for those of you who can see even a small spark in the darkest corners and then follow it with a childlike curiosity, this story is for you. My name is Jeremiah North. Open your eyes and follow me. And follow me. I did not live in this great nation as a wealthy man, and yet I did possess other riches, and for that I am grateful. The year was 1776, and I traveled from the Caribbean aboard the fair ship Aphrodite. We docked in Cuba before continuing on to the Weymouth, where I was to join the household of a local merchant called Archibald Crane. This was a cargo ship carrying molasses to the New World colonies on the east coast of the Americas, the Thirteen. The Crane household was grand, and I was pleased to be employed as the head landscaper. I was tasked with designing a garden and vista that would cause even the hard-hardest of people to gasp in adoration. I was to live in Weymouth for a period of one year, during which time I would transform that blank, grassy canvas at the rear of the house into a wonderland of greenery. It was there, at the crane home, that I would have an encounter that would change my life forever. That day was bitterly cold, so perhaps it was winter. I stood against a bracing wind that rolled straight in over Weymouth Harbor and looked into the storm clouds that blustered on the horizon. I was standing in the spot where a new Grecian temple would be added shortly to serve as the garden room and shelter for the days just like this. The temple would align with a constellation of the same name and with an elegant avenue that would lead back to the rear entrance of the house. The temple would be framed by the ocean, sometimes blue, sometimes gray, changing like the wind and the people who would seek solace in its shelter. As I stood alone, I noticed a coach arriving at the main house and a small party of visitors alighting. Someone was being carried. Then, Lloyd, the family's manservant, came running towards me, waving his arms wildly. Come to the house, Mr. North. It's Mr. Crane. As I approached the house by the side of the entrance, I noticed blood on the seat of the coach. It was a ghastly scene. A trail of red followed me into the house where I found Mr. Crane slumped in an armchair. A large circle of crimson stained his shirt just above his middle, pale and breathing heavily. He beckoned me closer. 
As I stood there listening to a dying man, I realized that this moment had been preordained for me by God and the heavens above. Green told me that he was the guardian of a secret, and yet he could not impart the details of it to any member of his family. Nor did he trust a manservant with such knowledge. I was the only person he would share his mysterious information to, in the hope that I was a man of integrity and loyalty. I promised him, as the life leapt from his body and his soul sailed skywards, that I would honor his memory and his secret. Crane thrust a journal into my hand. The binding was tainted with the owner's blood, but the pages inside were pristine and untouched, save for the two in the middle. They were decorated with a curious image, numbers and verse. One day, he rasped, you will be asked for this book by a seeker. You will know if that stranger is true and a willing guardian. The journal is a cloak. Something hides within it. It will lead you on a journey. You will reap reward, but you will not in a financial way. This treasure will not make you rich. Honor is not for sale. Crane gets some just a few moments later, leaving me to clutch the book in shock and wonder why he had really entrusted this unknown secret to me. In the years that followed, I went on to marry Crane's daughter, my beloved Genevieve, and we have both lived long and fruitful lives. Alas, now I'm in the twilight of my days. The seconds on the clock click closer and closer to everlasting sleep and the merciful slumber from which I will not wake. I am ready for death. I shall smile, reach out and take him by the hand, as if greeting an old friend. There is no fear on my part. As for Crane's secret, well, it became my own. I dared not to uncover it or its truth. I made promise to a dying man, and I did not waver in all the years past after his departure from this place. The stranger that Crane spoke of did not arrive, and I suspect that I am the only person that now knows of its existence. I know not why. Of course, I have been curious. However, it was not my destiny to discover or dig. Perhaps it's yours. The seeker is born to find, and every treasure deserves to be found. This is a game of hide and seek, so let the curiosity drive you. Read the journal pages, open your eyes, have a clear mind, and an honest heart. Find the secret, whatever it may, and better it free. Be the stranger that never came to me. Yours truly, Jeremiah North. Jeremiah North. Wow, uh, I'm not sure to take and what, what that all means, but I'm sure it's going to make more sense very soon. So keep listening, keep watching the Light from the Code Bar podcast, uh, follow our Facebook pages and everything like that. So again, we have come to the end of the show. And for all the information that doesn't make it into this podcast, as well as links that I mentioned, please visit the show notes and please don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, all with the handle at Code Bar Live. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and please help the podcast grow by leaving a rating and review, especially on the big one, Apple Podcasts. Now, I'll be back in around two weeks to talk about Perplex City.
my first show on an ARG or alternate reality game. So until next time, everyone, keep digging.